we wanted to create a fund where Black founders specifically could come and pitch and know that they would be judged on their merit, not on their race. That was, that was the first thing. The second thing was we wanted to dedicate a pool of capital to Black founders to ensure we were making a dent in the disparities related to capital allocation, right? So, you know, 55 million is not that much money, but it's 55 million more that we absolutely know is going to Black founders in healthcare than we have before. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. One of the subjects we keep coming back to here on the Health Technology Podcast is healthcare inequities. COVID-19 revealed a lot of very stark racial inequities in our systems. And a lot of our podcast guests are out there doing the incredibly difficult work addressing these disparities. Our podcast guest today, Marcus Whitney, is one of them. Marcus created Jumpstart Nova in 2020 to fund historically underfunded Black startups. He was also a founding partner of Jumpstart Health Investors, CEO of Health Further Conference, and co-founder of Trillion Health. All that and the best-selling author of Create and Orchestrate. Today, we discuss how to navigate the industry and what lessons you can take from his amazing career. Here's our conversation. Well, thanks, Marcus, for joining me this afternoon. Thank you, Christine. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited to have our conversation today. I think you're the first guest that I know f- uh, who are joining us from Nashville. <laughs> oh, that's that's a, that's an honor. Um, there's certainly a lot of healthcare and uh, entrepreneurship happening here in Nashville, so I'm glad I get to be the first, hopefully, of many. Yeah, I maybe I never asked, but somehow I felt like you're the first one from Nashville that we know. I mean, obviously, you know, Nashville is such a, a city that everybody's... Uh, always associated with music and yeah. I think it's always fun. And I know you're pretty involved in that music scene as well. But before we go dive in a lot of the things that we want to talk about, uh, it will be helpful for us to understand about your background, uh, what your journey path, like your personal background that takes you to where you are today. Sure. Yeah. So um, uh, maybe just start with with a quick uh, rundown of what I'm doing today. So I'm, I'm a healthcare venture capitalist. Um, and uh, focus on early stage investing. So um, for those familiar with the names of the stages, pre-seed, seed, and series A investing, um, you know, check sizes anywhere from 150K to probably, you know, 5 million uh, are what we do. Uh, the name of our, our firm is Jumpstart Health Investors, and we have several different funds uh, that we manage on the Jumpstart Health Investors platform, what we call it. Um, and I've been doing this for eight years. So that's kind of, you know, where I am today. And that's my, that's my day job. Uh, going all the way back, I was born and raised in, in Brooklyn, New York in uh, 1975. Um, both of my parents uh, stayed together and are still uh, alive, uh, thankfully. And, um, you know, I had a great, great life growing up in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, very, very diverse, um, you know, part of the city. Uh, lots of great families and uh, had a great time in school, lots of cool friends. Um, was fortunate that my uncle was an, uh, was a programmer at IBM. He lived in upstate New York, but he was a programmer at IBM. And he, for like my eighth or ninth uh, 
year Christmas gave me an IBM PC Junior. Uh, so it was my, like my first computer. And from there, I learned, you know, programming because computers back then didn't do anything that you didn't make them do through programming. So there was no Windows. There was no mouse. It was just the keyboard and the monitor. And it was like the screen looked like the Matrix, you know, like black screen, green letters uh, kind of thing. And uh, and so I was that was very that was very fortunate for me because uh, as I matriculated through high school, ended up going to college for architecture, went to school uh, to UVA um, for, for architecture. Uh, I basically shifted away from that that major uh, and dropped out to be a musician, uh, to be a hip hop producer and and also um, artist, and did that for like three four years and had a lot of fun going up and down the the East Coast and ultimately landed in Atlanta, uh, where I ended up meeting a girl, starting a family, and then had to reevaluate the whole music thing because, you know, it's the odds of getting uh, a record deal in music are really, really tough. Um, and once we had one kid and then she was pregnant with the second one, it was like, mm, I, I need to really reevaluate this whole music plan thing. So we ended up moving to Nashville because she uh, she spent her high school years in Nashville, had had a best friend here. And that was a little bit of a smaller, slower town. So we could start to build some community around us. When I got here, I was waiting tables uh, six and a half days a week at two different restaurants and uh, living in a week to week efficiency hotel. Uh, I was 24 at the time and really just trying to figure out what I was going to do. Um, how was I going to you know, transition out of this situation? And this was Labor Day of 2000 was when I moved to Nashville. And so that was the dot com boom. And at that time, there were all these Things, not so much on the internet because you know we didn't have a ton of broadband at the time. It was still you know pretty slow connections. But on TV, there were lots of stories of high school kids who had dropped out of high school and they were programming for companies, making six figures, riding around in offices on skateboards, right? And so um, I took that as a as a signal to me that if these kids can drop out of high school, then you know certainly if I teach myself how to do this web programming. I can become viable and I can get a job. So I spent eight months uh, in between waiting tables, teaching myself how to code, going to um, what are called user group meetings in the programming world where, where professional programmers come together and just, you know, kind of geek out and nerd out about, about certain technologies. And I, I, I didn't geek out and, and nerd out about them. I was just there to learn and watch and see how professional programmers behave and, and how they show up in the world. And over the course of eight week, eight months of doing that, I, I applied to a bunch of different companies and eventually got my first programming job at a company called HealthStream uh, as a junior content developer programming uh, uh, continuing education courseware uh, that was like on a CD-ROM uh, installable, you know, onto the computers. It's like completely different world from where we are today, right? Like, no, there were no websites where you could like learn online. It was all like these CD-ROMs and stuff. So, um. So yeah, so that was like the transition for me into the professional world. I spent the next seven years elevating uh, uh, as a technologist from a junior programmer, ultimately to a chief technology officer and chief architect, um, and uh, also moved from uh, healthcare into uh, uh, digital marketing. So ended up being uh, the head of technology at a uh, email marketing company from 2003 to 2007. That ended up doing very well, and I earned some equity. So I, that was where I started really learning about startups and equity, and you know how do you build companies and go from burning cash to making cash and sort of all that stuff. 
Um, and then in 2007, the company was was doing well, but also started to get a little big, a little political um, for me anyway. And I decided this was probably the right opportunity for me to shift into entrepreneurship. So I left in 2007. Um, I went to South by Southwest in 2007, and that was a really uh, important year for for that festival. Twitter kind of launched there. Zuckerberg was there. Mark uh, 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 Gary Vaynerchuk was there. Uh, you know, it, it was kind of the beginning of the whole social web uh, kind of happened at that event. And so that was where I realized, oh, man, the, the world is changing. And then also in 2007, the iPhone came out. And so I was sort of right on the on the front end of that. And, uh, and, and what I, what I ultimately decided was I wanted to learn more about venture capital. That was like the big takeaway for me coming out of South by Southwest was, uh, in Nashville, there was not a lot of venture capital. And so I just was not that aware of it. The, the email marketing company that I was at, Emma was not venture capital backed. the two founders, they, uh, invested in the company by mortgaging their, their house, uh, and so taking loans out from the bank. And so when I went to South by, I was like, oh, wow, there's there's people who are writing checks into these companies and they're really advancing innovation in a, in a really crazy way. So I started the process of learning what venture capital was, how it worked and how might I get to that side of the table? How might I get to the check writing side of the table? I met uh, a venture capitalist here in Nashville, a guy named Vic Gatto, and we started to exchange um, information. I was teaching him about the, the new era of entrepreneurship and technology, um, like Steve Blank and the Lean Startup and open source software and the cloud. I was teaching him about, about all that stuff. And he was teaching me about finance and venture capital. And eventually we decided to become partners. And that started what today is Jumpstart Health Investors, um, you know, a portfolio of 150 companies and, uh, you know, three funds, 10 fund, uh, fund vintages. And, uh, you know, what, what's been what's been really great. So I guess, you know, the the, the main throughput there has been uh, technology and innovation has been key uh, for me uh, throughout my my career from the very beginning of like getting out of, you know, being a, a waiter, especially once I had two kids uh, and getting into programming, which was the definitive change in my life. But then ultimately, you know, the more and more I leaned into technology, the more and more I learned about the broader world around technology and then learned about venture capital and uh and now you know I'm, I'm i'm a venture capitalist which is you know pretty crazy yeah and i think it's uh when you look back many many years ago and look where you are today it is, seems like a crazy but um uh, congratulations maybe you can tell us a little bit more about how is uh your um your fund uh, with the Jumpstart Nova, yeah. how is it different from the Jumpstart Health Investors? Yeah. And is there like a certain focus in the Jumpstart Nova? Why do you start the Jumpstart Nova? Yeah, absolutely. So so the very first fund that we started is called Jumpstart Foundry. It, it's the earliest stage fund we have. It's the most active one we have, and it invests only in pre-seed stage companies. So it doesn't do any follow-on investing. So we've been doing that since 2014. And... Um, you know, that was going really well. Then we eventually layered on our second fund family called Jumpstart Capital. That was investing in seed and series A and, and picking up the best companies out of uh, Jumpstart Foundry to to follow on invest in. And we were pretty happy with those two fund families. Um, but then, you know, COVID hit. <laughs> 
And, uh, you know, America was sort of, you know, the world was turned, uh, you know, upside down. But in America, we we sort of had two reckonings. One, we had the reckoning of the healthcare system, right, which was sort of definitely falling over in a variety of ways. It started with PPE and then it went into, you know, uh, just sort of inadequate, um, you know, inadequate support systems for our clinical frontline workers, right? You know, and that that just sort of went on for two full years. Um, and then also the other big headline we had on in, in America was uh, the murder of George Floyd, which was not the only terrible incident that had happened that year, but it was really just the tipping point, right? We had had before that Ahmaud Arbery and before that Breonna Taylor. So we were, we were building to this conversation um, and, and then George Floyd was at the absolute tipping point to that. And so I, like everybody else in America, was just reflecting on life. We're all in our homes, you know, and, and it feels like the world is on fire, right? And I was reflecting on, on my life. You know, I am, I'm a black male. Um, I'm a venture capitalist, so that already puts me in pretty rare air. I'm a healthcare venture capitalist, so that's like really, really rare air. Um, in Nashville, I'm the only black healthcare venture capital partner. Um, and, you know, and then I, I guess the other thing was that I had, I had invested in multiple black founders and knew, you know, while it wasn't something we were doing, uh, intentionally through any type of quote or anything, it was just more, we had networks and, you know, could relate to the founders and we had had four exits in 2020 and two of those exits were companies that had black founders. And so, you know, we knew it was a, it was also a great group of companies to invest in. And so I was, I was really just thinking about what might my, uh, my unique impact be in a moment like this. And long story short, ended up writing a letter to Nashville's healthcare industry, which is a very, very, very powerful healthcare industry segment, um, to which I belong. I'm a member of the Nashville Healthcare Council. I was, um, I'm a graduate of the Nashville Healthcare Fellows Program. And so, you know, I'm part of this industry and I wrote an open letter to my, um, to my colleagues really just sort of highlighting the incredible amount of power that we have, as well as, um, you know, the inequities that have existed in this industry since its founding, right? It's like, uh, you know, Nashville's the home of most of the, the largest for-profit um, health systems in the country. And that really started with HCA Healthcare, which was founded in 1968 um, by, by great, great entrepreneurs, uh, uh, Thomas Frist Sr., Thomas Frist Jr., and, and Jack Massey. Um, but also in 1968, three hours from Nashville in Memphis, where HCA was founded, um, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Uh, and so, you know, if you just sort of take those two events in history and you, and you put them up against each other, it's fairly clear, you know, no black people could have founded HCA Healthcare. That just was not even possible at that time, right? And then if you just play things out 50 years later and you look at the makeup of boards and, and, and executive management teams and, and so forth and so on, uh, black people are largely absent from those things across the entire healthcare industry. And so I just made the point that, um, you know, while we're having this big conversation about health equity and about, you know, the disparities and outcomes from, you know, black people getting COVID-19 versus white people getting COVID-19, et cetera, et cetera, you know, let's not forget that, that there's a fundamental power differential in this industry that is directly correlated with these uh, disparities and outcomes. And so I wrote this letter, the response was, was very, very positive. Um, and it, it, it started a conversation that led to me thinking, 
based on my position, based on my network, and based on the success we had already had in our portfolio, that we could create a dedicated fund for um, for for Black healthcare entrepreneurs. Uh, and that had ne- had never happened in in uh, in the history of the venture capital industry. Um, and you know, and and it, it, you know, it proved to be pretty needed. And so, Jumpstart Nova is exclusively investing in Black-founded and and led healthcare companies um, that are based in the U.S., focused on the U.S. And uh, we successfully closed our our fund one, closing fifty five million in capital, and have uh, started to deploy that. We've got uh, six portfolio companies so far, and continuing to to grow that portfolio. Um, and we also have a great group of strategic limited partners, which are healthcare organizations um, from across the country in health systems, payers, um, trade organizations, medical schools, uh, uh, health health services companies that are that are investors in our fund, and also leaned in to really help us strategically to make the right investments. And then once we make those investments, to help those companies be really successful. Um, so that's that's Jumpstart Nova. It's our it's our third fund family. And we we really think we have an opportunity to to add more more specific fund families that target just because healthcare is so large, you know, three trillion in spend every year, growing, you know, from eighteen percent probably to twenty percent GDP in the next five years. Um, there's so many aspects and facets of of uh, of healthcare that you know to say to say you're a healthcare fund doesn't really mean anything. Well, okay, so what does that mean? You know, are you focused on uh, you know, commercial payers or Medicaid? Are you focused on devices or health tech? Are you focused on brick and mortar or virtual? Like, you know, there's so many different things you could be working on in healthcare. So we think there's room for us to create more, um, you know, specifically focused healthcare venture capital funds in time. But Nova is, uh, is I would say, our first of that, of that, you know, of that type. Mm-hmm. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So share with me, like, why is it important for like in your, your fund to specifically focus only to support Black founder? How is that going to make an impact that you hope to achieve? Yeah, so I think there are a couple of things. One, there is such a strong sense uh, amongst Black founders that they, are, they are often are not selected for investment by venture capital funds because of their race. That is that is a very strong, strongly held belief. And when you look at the numbers, it's pretty difficult to uh, say that that belief does not have merit, okay? So one of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to eradicate that situation. So when a Black founder pitches to us, if we say no, one thing they know for sure is it's not because of their race, right? Um, if we say no, it will be because of some other reason. Uh, that reason could be that we don't have conviction about the company. That reason could be that when we look at our strategic limited partners, we don't believe that we um, are the best partner for them. 
Um, it could be they're too early. It could be they're too late. Uh, it could be a, a, a million things. But one of those things will not be uh, because they're black. That will not be a reason why they did not receive investment from us. So that was, I think, the first thing is we wanted to create a fund where black founders specifically could come and pitch and know that they would be judged on their merit, not on their race. So that was that was the first thing. The second thing was we wanted to dedicate a pool of capital to black founders to ensure we were making a dent in the disparities related to capital allocation, right? So, you know, 55 million is not that much money, but it's 55 million more that we absolutely know is going to black founders in healthcare than we had before, right? And so that's sort of the next thing. And then I would say beyond that, you know, there's all of the the softer aspects of it where, uh, you know, these founders may feel uh, that we as fund managers might be partners they can better relate to um, for a variety of reasons, right? Um, it could just be cultural uh, resonance. It could be that they're trying to solve a problem that is specific to black populations. And so because we share that lived experience, we will have a better understanding of the problem they're trying to solve and the angle that they're taking in, the, in how they're trying to solve that problem. Right. Um, so there are all these kind of softer aspects uh, of it as well that I think are are, ben are beneficial to the companies that we're, we're trying to serve. As you know, being an investor, you know, like you said, fifty five million dollars is uh, a lot, but it's also limited. That's right. Then you cannot. Uh, what are the things that, as a investor at large, can participate in order to support the mission, the cost that uh, you guys are interested in? Yeah. So I mean, you know, we're already seeing. Uh, you know, we're always starting to develop great relationships with other venture funds uh, as as co-investors, which is great. Um, I think that, you know, generally speaking, uh, the the uh, the focus on investing in diverse founders, not just black founders, but diverse founders, whether it be women, whether it be people of color, whether it be, um, uh, you know, uh, people who served in the military, whether it be people who live with disabilities, uh, has improved. Uh, quite a bit over the last year and a half. You know, you're, you're talking about an industry that's at least half a century old, and so it's not going to change immediately in a year. But, you know, there's certainly more diverse funds out there now. There's more diverse fund managers. You know, they have different focuses, different value sets, and that all reflects into how the capital is deployed and who it gets deployed to. And so um, we are making progress as an industry, but there's a lot more work to... Um, to be done. And so, you know, our job is to continue to grow our presence, to make great investments, and also to do, I think, uh, critical industry market research that nobody else really can do um, to, to help make the case that this is a pretty significant market opportunity that is worthy of more capital than is currently going into it. So, um, you know, I think it's a, it's a, it's a process. And, and look, I mean, the reality is we're we're now, you know, a full two years beyond uh, the murder of George Floyd and, and, and other headlines have have taken over America. Right. You know, whether it be Roe versus Wade or whether it be, you know, mass shootings or whether it be inflation and gas prices or the stock market, you know, collapsing or the potential looming recession. So, you know, 
different storylines have different times. And, and, you know, we're, we're excited to be here for the long haul to hand, to, to really address, address this issue. And, you know, we're always open to and looking for partners who, who, who share that, that vision and that conviction and may not dedicate an entire fund to it, but certainly are, are, are looking uh, to, to allocate, you know, a, a significant, you know, portion of their, their assets under management into diverse founders. Yeah, and I think it's a headline. I feel like there's a lot of challenges in life, you know, even before the internet, I think it's always, the latest news always caught everybody's eyes and it's always good to have some somebody who's just focused, laser focused on certain mission. I think that's what make, make a difference, I think. Um, in terms of the gender, the bias, the, the race bias, like what you're saying as the founders of mm-hmm. Black founders, what can be done differently for investors who want to increase the diversity and like for them, like what are the things, is there like a framework or a tool that they can maybe overcome? Um, well, I, I would say one of the first things to do is to, is to state that you're, you're looking for these founders. Right. Um, so, you know, we, we launched publicly in January of, of this year, 2022, and when we launched, you know, we had 150 companies uh, f- fill out our form um, to, to be considered for investment. And it's because we were clear in the market, hey, we are looking to invest in black healthcare founders, right? And so I think the first step is just say it. Just say, hey, you know, we're looking to do a better job of investing in black healthcare founders. If you are one or you know one and you meet this criteria, please get in touch with us. Right. I mean, you know, open the door, um, make it, you know, make people feel that, that you're actually looking to have a conversation with them to learn about what, what it is they're doing and w- would actually properly consider them for investment. Right. Because, um, because the historical data tells us that, um, that for decades, venture funds have not been open to, um, investing in, in, in diverse founders. Um, right. And, and so I think simply starting with just publicly saying it, uh, that's a, that's a really, that's a really good start. You know, I don't want to go so far as to establish how people need to design their funds, right. To say, okay, you're going to have this kind of quota or you're going to do, or you're going to favor people in the process this way, that way, or the third that, you know, I don't think that's necessary. I, I I think you can do that if you want to, but that's that's not that's not necessary. But I do think what's necessary is it's not enough to just think it in your head. You know, um, if you want to actually evaluate, you know, black founded companies, let's say, um, go out on Twitter and and go to your website and get on podcasts and say that, right? So the word can get around so that these founders know, oh, hey, this is a this is a fund that's actually looking. Um, to potentially invest in me. Let me reach out to them and let me connect with them. I think sometimes uh, as a founder, when they, one of the things they always being told is like, look at the investor and see who are on their portfolio, whether you're the right fit or not. And then sometimes when they don't see who, that they're represented, maybe that's when they feel like this is not the right fit for me. Of course, of course. And, And unfortunately, you will see way more websites, portfolio pages where you're not a fit than where you are a fit if you're a black founder. 
And if you're a black healthcare founder, it's really bad. Um, Mm -hmm. right. So that's just, that's just the reality. And that's why I'm saying coming out and making those statements is, is very important. Right. Cause I think then at least when they go to the website, they can see, even though currently I'm not fully represented, the fact that it was stated, then it's like, oh, this could be a right fit. That's right. For me. Now that was interesting. I mean, I never thought about it that way until you mentioned it. Um, so I, I know we are short on time. If, uh, I want to touch on some of your fun music experience, even though you started your career in music, you're not in music, but now you're you're pretty active in the board of your country music in Nashville. And you shared a little bit about your experience being the hip hop artist and then waited table and then become entrepreneur and then a venture capitalist. What are the things that you learned through that time when you're struggling artists and then try to feed your family and then completely path your career to where you are? Yeah. And how um, does that reflect to entrepreneurs that what they can learn from that? Sure. Yeah. I, I think, I think there's a couple of things, right. And they're, they're actually kind of, uh, conflicting ideas uh, that you have to kind of hold in your head at the same time. So one is that you have to understand, uh, you have to understand the market, right, that you're trying to enter. So at any given point in time, the market is accepting of certain things and not accepting of other things. And so, you know, if you are looking for success, if you're looking for adoption, if you're looking for people to like your music, um, you do need to be relevant within that that time, that era, that 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 sound that's going on, um, that's that is important because people are creatures of of habit, and you know they're they're used to what they're used to, and they like what they like, and if it doesn't fit into those things, it's going to be pretty difficult for them to uh, to to take the time out of their life to try to meet you where you are. Right? It's like they have a million other things they care about. They want music to do a certain job for them to. to to take their mind off of work when they're in the car home or to pump them up when they're at the gym, right? You know, they're using it for a specific purpose, not to like feed your ego. So you need to have a strong understanding of where the market is at any given point in time. Now, having said that, you also need to be very authentic, right? Um, And so you you can't be a me too of another artist, right? You can't come across just like some other artists, because people will say, well, I don't need to listen to this person because they are just a, a, a copycat, a knockoff of, of this person, right? So you both have to understand where the market is generally and what, what the consumer really wants. And at the same time, you have to bring your own totally unique version of that to the market, right? So that when people hear it, it is truly differentiated. That That's that's what makes them want what you have to give, but it still is in the pocket of what the market is looking for. Um, and the market moves and the market evolves over time and you have to be, you know, malleable. It, you know, as long as you want to have success in the market, you have to be malleable to, to continue to evolve with that um, and all the while remaining authentic. Uh, so that's a difficult balance, I think, for a lot of people to strike in any creative field. I consider startups to be a creative field, right? And so. Um, you know, you, we, we see lots of products where what they're doing doesn't feel that radical. Um, but the way that they're doing it is, is pretty, is radically unique, you know, and, uh, and those products can be, you know, massively successful. Um, and so I think, I think that 
music and musicians and founders are the same in that they're creatives and they're trying to put a creative product out there into the world and and they're trying to get that product to resonate, you know, broadly. Uh, and they're trying to get adoption of that product. You know, for musicians, it's a song. For for founders, it's a product. Uh, but same, same, you know, same, same, same process ultimately and uh, and same path to success ultimately. And, and you know, and, and in both cases, listen, it's a lot of hard work. I mean, you know, you see musicians, they're on TV, they're on videos. It, it looks really good. But like if you've ever looked at a musician's touring schedule, it is brutal. You couldn't do it. You know, <laughs> it's like... It's awful. They're literally in like 10 different cities in 10 days. You know, um, I, I just did a week of travel and I was in four cities and, you know, and I had the benefit of like flying, not being on in like a van driving on the road. Okay. And I was like dead at the end. So it's like, you know, be careful what you wish for. You know, you want to be, you want to be famous. You want all this influence. It's like, listen, these people work terribly long hours it's it's brutally hard the amount of time they have to put into practice to be good on stage and good in the studio it's really 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 hard work just like founding a company is really 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 hard work yeah i think that's the moral of the story in order for you to get to where success is is not something that you don't need to put on the time and effort and energy to it that's right um, I think that's, um, that's, and then I think also you mentioned a lot about being authentic and how to be authentic. Cause I think oftentimes people trying to please others yes. and, and then not be authentic. And how do you stay true to that yourself? Well, you have to, you have to understand that that is not, um, that, that is both not sustainable and not optimal. Um, you can do it and you can get results. It's very difficult to sustain. Um, and it's, and it's not it, because it's expensive energetically and it's also just not optimal, right? It's much more optimal to be who you are. So you don't have to like, remember who you have to be in any given setting. It's, it's just so much easier to show up and be who you actually are. That's like a million times easier. Um, right now, the difficult process sometimes is people don't know who they are yet, right? And that's a that's a maturing process and an introspection process and a life experience process and a maturation process. But like once you do know who you are, be you. You know, don't be don't don't be anyone else. When you when you're young, when you're a kid, you're not you because you don't know who you are yet, right? You're, you're a teenager. You're even when you're a young adult, you don't know who you are yet. Generally speaking, you know, you are you're trying you're you're emulating. What you're, you're emulating what looks cool or what feels cool or what you believe success to be. But over time, through lived experiences, if you're taking cues from your body, you know, and from your heart, you, you should be navigating towards who you actually are, doing the things that make you feel good and also, when you do them, provide value to the world, right? Um the way you dress, the way you, the way you speak, the way you engage people, the work that you choose to do, what time of day you choose to work, right? All of these kinds of things, they, they're all, they're, they're all edges to who you are. Um, and you have to get to the point where you understand those things and then you can stand up for them. You know, uh, you have to defend those things. You have to defend the things that make you, you with that, with other people. And that's everybody from like your coworkers to your customers, to your spouse and your family, you know, you, when it, when it comes to defending who you are, there's really nobody 
who you're not going to at some point in time have to establish a boundary with, right? Um, that's just, you know, it's you and you alone on that, on that, on, on that front, but that has to be, um, you know, that, that has to be a big part of, of, of your equation for success. And I think that's true for everybody. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of things that I believe to be universally true. That one I believe is universally true. And I, I like how you were, how you saying about when you're young, you figure out who you want, who is your true that you really want to be. And it comes with maturation. And hopefully at some point, you know, this is, this is me, this, I like me. And be, then you'll be okay to be true to yourself and everything will built around it, I think. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, and it's super interesting, right? Because all, all of these things that really, really work in life, they're, they're like these opposed ideas, right? And so it's like, it's not caring what other people think and also paying attention to what is resonating with other people. Right. Because because we, 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 we don't live in isolation. We are social animals. Right. You know, so the feedback from other people does matter. It does matter. Right. Um, and and, and it, it has a lot to do with how we feel. But there's there's a difference between understanding that as a general compass for the work that you're going to do and how you're going to do it in your life versus trying to please a particular person. Right. You know, so. Those are things that you you only really figure out with life experience. I think. I think they're yeah. they're, they're very. These are very very difficult things when you're young, uh, to to parse yeah. out the difference between those two things. Yeah. No, I remember. I think I felt like when I was younger, I felt like I do certain things, and then I change completely just based on somebody' quick reaction. I was like, oh, you know. But then I think now you become more like, you know, I think I'm good. I think I'm good. Yeah. I appreciate that feedback. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but sort of thing is like, oh yeah, I can I can tweak, but I think the core are pretty much you kind of figure out your core. That's right. Uh, which is make you happier, I think, in terms of how you live your life. But thank you, this has been great. Thank you so much for sharing. I feel like I have so much more questions because you have so much more fun activities that you're doing, and I know that you're, you know founder of some, an owner of Nashville soccer club. And I thought that's really exciting too, in terms of your venture and your music, you have so much energy. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, you know, we could, we could always circle back at another time, but, but I I appreciate this conversation. It was fun. I I always like to, you know, talk about, uh, how, how to live. Right. Uh, because it's something I'm constantly working on too, right? Like I don't have it all figured out, but I think, you know, the more that we have conversations about it, reflect on the things we do, we have figured out. Um, sometimes it exposes things that we haven't figured out. And, you know, it's always much more valuable for me than just running down a resume of things that I've accomplished. Right. I mean, that's, that's not, that's not that fun. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for your time. And uh, we'll catch up some other time soon. I hope. Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.